Hey guys, Holly Pyle is my guest this week. Holly is a vocal performer uh, who performs with a band called House of Stairs as well as solo. Um, I actually got first exposed to Holly a few months ago while I was conducting another interview uh, for Peanut. Remember, shout out to Peanut Performance Arts. Uh, uh, we were talking over at SIP uh, Garage and I had not really spent a lot of time there before. Um, so I decided to hang on and finish my coffee after we were done talking. And uh, Holly happened to be performing inside solo. And that's why I first saw her looping thing. And it was uh, super interesting and engaging. And I wish I had better adjectives for it, but I'm not that kind of person. Uh, but I, I just really got caught up in it, and I recorded a little video of it for the Instagram at the time. Um, and uh, I, don't know, I, I just didn't really think much of it, but I just kind of made a little, little mental note of like, oh, yeah, wow, that's awesome. Um, but then, I don't know, recently I just decided there's no good reason why I shouldn't have her on the podcast as a guest. But that's the whole reason to do this shit. Uh, and she was gracious enough to accommodate me right after one of her gigs uh, playing at the Vig Arcadia. Super sweet vibe there, by the way. Uh, and so we chatted for a little while out in the parking lot. Uh, Holly is super kind and smart and interesting uh, to speak with. Uh, so I, again, I appreciate her giving me some of her time. Uh, as this goes up, the, this is a couple days from my final show of uh, Reason to be Pretty, my Laughing Pig Theater. Uh, so if you're into what I do at all and you're in the Phoenix area, um, come check it out. It's a you know it's a small venue and it's a real intimate, a really good show. I really can't speak enough of the actors. Uh, they they just have given so much themselves to it, and I I want to give them all the praise and accommodation that I can, and uh, I want to make sure that everyone gets to see how great they are. So get a chance come over on Saturday to the Mesa Art Center and check us out. Uh, email me for details or check out the Facebook page for laughingpigtheater.com. Uh, anyway, um, besides that, uh, we got some other stuff going on for the theater, so keep an eye out for that shit. And the podcast will continue going as it always does, usually a little bit late. So <laughs> appreciate everybody sticking through all that. And in the meantime, enjoy Holly Bile. Serving Artist Phoenix, I'm Tony Machete and I have Holly Pyle. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Fantastic, thank you. So we, we were just mentioning that um, I actually first got exposed to you while I was doing another interview. I was interviewing somebody at SIP um, and uh, after I was done I was finishing my coffee inside and you were doing a solo set at the time, it was just you looping. And I thought it was like the coolest thing I'd seen in a long time, yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of made a mental note that at some point in the future I wanted to be able to swing back around and, and see what your deal was. So I'm glad you made some time for me after totally. this, this awesome gig that I caught the last half hour of. Oh, sweet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess how, let's start off at the beginning. So I, I know that you had a background in some other musical styles before you got into jazz. So yes. tell me a little bit about just kind of your first taste of getting into the music scene. Okay. Well, scene and music in general are two different things. But okay. Okay. The, the first taste of music, I started choir around 10. 
and then started opera training at 15 and then got really like into R&B like just like Mariah Carey, Alicia Keys were like my idols, okay. Fiona Apple and Alanis Morissette. <laughs> um, so a combination of like going to school for st stuff and then liking certain pop music. I went to college for opera, uh, started doing jazz in college and really liked jazz a lot and had to quit opera to do jazz. So um, yeah, once I finished school, took a break for a while because I was petrified of doing music and then started doing some like open mics a bunch and jam sessions to try and get in the scene, um, mostly as jazz at first. And then I met Garrison and Steven uh, a little over four years ago and found that they liked the same music that I like to listen to. And so we try to create like our own jazz-ish progressive style. And um, so House of Stairs became out of that. And we're, we're still just figuring ourselves out. Nice. So there's a couple things that you mentioned that I want to kind of go back and yeah. dwell on for a second. So even starting at the very beginning. So you started just basic, you know, every kid does it type choir yeah. at, at 10. Um, and then it went straight to opera training at 15. So yeah. when when did you realize that you wanted to get that involved in it, I guess? Well, I've always liked singing a lot. Um, and I was always that choir kid that's really awkward <laughs> for singing too loud. But the teacher really took a, a, a faith in me. And um, he's like, well, I can only teach you so much. You really should learn from another teacher. And it's one of those things where the, the default teachers go into classical music. So just basically on based on the voice lessons, it was like, cool, that's your style, you need to learn how to do classical music and like do this professional sort of operatic style. So it kind of just became like you you associated like professional singing with opera. Exactly. I didn't know there was other options. Like I know that people do pop music, but as far as the like the circuit from going to high school to college, like what you study right. in Arizona, I didn't know you could do something else besides huh. opera. So that was the reason for it. Interesting. And uh, I know you said you did that all through high school, so yeah. you got into, uh, and then you kind of discovered jazz. Were you, were you always a little bit dissatisfied with opera, or did you start to realize that when you were exposed to things in college? Um, opera has perks. It, the, <laughs> the theatrics and the, the character of it's really awesome, and I really resonate with that. The problem with operatic style, for me personally, is that when it comes to pitch, I'm kind of a control freak, and I, I, I'm, my ears are very sensitive to pitch, and so. With opera, you have this vibrancy to the voice that is is done well when it's not always perfectly on pitch. There's this this it warbles between pitches to get this vibrancy, mm -hmm. um, and so it was really hard for me to do that technique because I just wanted to hit one note and just stick to that one note, and um, it was just like this identity crisis of how to hit the notes. So <laughs> when I found jazz, to find that there's artists that have this straight tone and have this sort of liquidness inside of their melodies and the way that they, they can interact more harmonically interesting style, um, I was sold at that point. So, so I mean, did you, did you recognize that's what it was right away? Because I feel like there's this whole language that you've you know, kind of developed <laughs> to describe this that I mean, yeah. I, mean I don't even completely understand in some ways. So like, did, were you aware of like what you were looking for, I guess? Or was it something that you just heard it and you're like, that's what it is? I think I found that jazz was like a more <laughs> collegiate expression of, of the R&B stuff that I loved. Okay. So I love that Mariah Carey has these crazy ornaments. Like I just, I loved the yeah. way that, that progressive music like approaches ornamentation. Um, so just like, like that kind of thing. I'm just like, that's so cool. And then you hear it with jazz, but you hear it in a, in a more um, complex 
collection of improvisation that the, a saxophone is, is doing that, but with with more complicated chords, it's very challenging. So um, I just it was I wasn't used to it, and once I heard it, I just this is so cool. And like these kinds of chords are an acquired taste, but once you start to taste them, it you're hooked. So when did you start working with other instrumentalists? Um, well, in college with the jazz thing, um, I was working in an auditorium, and my boss was a piano player. And he says, hey, Holly, I, I know you're getting into jazz. We do a jam session over here, and you could come and bring your jazz standards, and you can sing live with us. So that was sort of the first time where I got a taste of what it's like to interact with a band, and that there's a whole dynamic of leading a band and like counting off a tune and having, your, having preferences of how you want to do a tune. Um, are all new things that you figure out, and I didn't do very well at first, of course, but um, and but I really loved that there was this dialogue, that, that whereas I feel like the role of opera is there's the singer, and they're the lead, and then everyone else is accompanying them, doing their thing, but I, I don't like that sense. I like the idea that you're just a piece of something, and everybody has this equal part of importance, and, and it's this collaboration and jazz really serves that kind of relationship with music. I do you think kind of like you, what you mentioned there is that that image that people have I mean that it's hard to separate the idea of the vocalist from like the front person yeah. or yeah the band leader in some way so I mean it sounds like that's not a role that you really ever wanted to take but that's one that you had to go into like yeah. what's that experience been like I mean that the front role is cool when you're a character and I get I get that's the reasoning for it right you're, right. you're really portraying this this uh, expression of a feeling in this person um, and in a in a band I still I don't mind leading in the sense of that there's still this character in a song um, I just don't want to take a disproportionate amount of credit for what this music is providing people like I don't want to I don't want people to just only hear a melody and only hear lyrics and, and hear that as just the one construct of, of what's quality in that sound, that, that there's so much to appreciate with hearing the way that a, a drummer plays, the way that a piano player plays, and, and those textures are, are a full picture of, a, of an expression. So how do you consciously back off of that, I guess? How do you, how do you fight that, um, that expectation? Well, I mean, I think in the band that I work with, by proxy, you know, there's a time where you sing a thing and there's a time where you step back and you watch and, and you listen. And then they get to have their own time to really showcase their interaction with the harmony and, and with, with the vibe and the rhythm. Uh, and, and sometimes I'll be able to sing over that, but it's just about knowing when to be quiet and then knowing when to make sound. And not just for like the band's sake, but also for the music and, and for the poetry. That's some of these things that they need space. and. So it's just constantly being aware of like when your ego is getting involved and when to back off. And I mean, that's I think that's a difficult thing, especially for artists, because I think that in order to do what we do, there has to be a certain amount of ego involved. Um, and I know that you still do. I mean, not, not to make any kind of implications, but I know that you still do solo music as well. So I mean, do you find that you feel a little more liberated when it's just to you, and that you can just control every element and you don't have to step back? It's a it's a love hate thing where okay. I. There are some things about looping that I adore, and I love being able to manage every single piece of something and be responsible for it, because it, it forces me to, to strengthen those, those factors of musicianship, and it also gives me more respect for other players, because I'm like, oh, I know exactly what you had to do to do what you're doing. Um, on the other hand, I, I realize I'm not the expert of, of beatboxing, and I'm not the expert of bass lines, and, and like, as much as I can arrange sound under myself, 
I learn so much more if I'm listening to other people doing what they are really good at than if I'm just always by myself. So it's it's kind of you've you've developed like I guess an, an adequacy and, and all those elements that like you would need around you as a vocalist. Yeah. Okay. But also the more time has passed, like initially with looping, it was always by myself and I liked it that way. Um, just because I, I felt like a control freak about the sounds I'm making and like <laughs> If I wanted to have a duo thing, someone would be like, well, what key is that? I'm like, I don't know what key is that. What are the changes? I don't know the changes. I'm just hearing it, and I, I'm just putting it out there. And I just felt insecure that I didn't have that communication. Mm -hmm. But the more time I've spent collaborating with either a drummer or uh, a bass player, it's way more fun to do looping with one other person. So I'm, like, transformed now where by myself it gets lonely, and, like, people don't clap for things, and then you're just like, okay, cool, what's next? Let me just kind of get the list going. And a solo... Being a solo singer is actually a pretty lonely place after a while. I can imagine. I don't want to yeah. put a pin in that a little bit, but I'm curious just how you got exposed to the technique of looping in the first place, because it's yeah. it's not a I guess it's not a new thing, but yeah. I feel like it's not a, not a lot of people do it as involved as you do. I don't know. Got it. Yeah. There's a few artists. Um, Teresa Anderson, yeah. Cirilla May, Tune Yards are, are three that are incredible vocal pioneers of looping. And when I saw them doing that, it was the first time I felt like, wow, I could do that too. Because usually people with looping, they're like, oh, I have this instrument and this instrument, I'm going to put this together. And I don't feel very confident in my instrument ability. Mm. So, um, and with, with Surreal May, what she brought to it is that she actually does create all the harmonies herself as far as she makes these vocal arrangements of, of how these chords happen before she sings. And I, I really uh, was inspired by that. And then with Tune Yards, the way that she interacts rhythmically with it, especially like you can um, land vocal parts in certain places and then they come together and like seem this beautiful arpeggiated string of sound. Where there's one song where she's like, but she can do it where you separate the notes and then when they come together, they're all lined up. Hard to explain, but it's just like, yeah. I'm just blown away that there's so much you can do. So I bought a smaller loop station and then six months later upgraded the loop station and then once the upgrade happened, everything changed because then you have five loop stations and you can change measures and you can put effects in and you can transpose things and all of a sudden like you can be a music theory geek and figure out how to do songs that shouldn't be looped on a loop station. And Can you give me an example of that? Um, there's um, Across the Universe is one that I do on loop station where um, there's a consistent four bars in the verse but then Sometimes the, that one bar is going to be five beats instead of four, and you have to use like a beat repeat function to make it longer, or you just turn off a loop so that you have this sort of created space. Um, and then there's like a bridge where there's Jagarudeva, and so that's a new channel. And then like the next channel, I'll beatbox something, and then the Nothing's Gonna Change My World section happens in a new channel, and then I can go back to the other verse and turn it on, but they're all independent. And then I do this other counterpoint ending for the chorus later and then you just keep adding as you go but having all five they, they can be different lengths and um and different sections of the song instead of just one it seems a, a lot more active a lot more engaged <laughs> exactly yeah. though but that's yeah. um that's the fundamental value that i feel inside of looping is that it's one thing to be like, oh, cool, I made a layer. Let me just revel in how great that layer sounded and like spend like an hour, like a minute and a half making just yeah. an introduction. But it's another thing to really take hold of the arranging process to make sure that every single part of it is really engaging and that it's very deliberate because you're taking up other people's time and space. And it's just paying respect 
to their ears and not just dilly-dallying, but really like creating something for them. Is that something you feel at, at every gig still? The idea that you, they're almost doing you a favor by listening to you? I wouldn't like say it that, no, I wouldn't say it that way. Like, oh, thank, no, it's just, it's just a matter, it's like a mutual respect. Like they're, they're in a space, they want an ambiance. I'm providing an ambiance, but in a, such a way that it's just, it's my own selfish value to care about space and to, to not take it for granted. Do you feel like that's the appeal of, of like cover songs to most artists? So even even here, here yeah. at the end of the you I cut a couple of covers. Like, is the appeal of a cover song just to say that you had the technical ability to do it as well, or to do it your own way? It depends. Every every song is different. It's sometimes the song is just really badass, and you're like, I just want to do that song because <laughs> I love it and I just want to sing it. Sometimes you're like, that's a really interesting challenge. Um, I want to be able to gain that songwriting skill by learning this tune. Um, sometimes it's like, hey, people want covers, and which ones are going to make me not throw up by learning them? <laughs> because they're like, well, we want Top 40, and we want Taylor Swift, and you're like, well, how can I digest Taylor Swift in a way that I can sleep at night and not hate my life? Um, so really like the House of Stairs and the looping stuff is a, the way that things are rearranged is really just to digest sometimes songs I wouldn't otherwise do, or, or to, yeah, to hone in on, on songwriting or just... Um, arranging chops in general with a template. But do you feel like as a musician, especially someone like you said is kind of just a music theory geek, yeah. um, do you think that you are obligated to have like an appreciation of all different kinds of music or do you do you think it's okay to have a taste, <laughs> I guess? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think forcing appreciation is, is the, is the, the game as yeah. much as, I mean I think it's fine to expose yourself and, and I think that's what music schools try to do is they, they want to give you exposure to a lot of different styles and approaches and composition so that at the end of the day you've, you've at least observed it so that when you are doing your own individual thing you have a, go a good palette to make a decision with and because a lot of people if they haven't really heard very much they're going to resort to the same kind of three chords and it's just a very natural tendency because our ears have to really learn a lot of different sounds and different progressions to to use them. So I definitely encourage people to listen to everything. And then you can decide you don't like it, but at least listen to it. And maybe hear someone who likes it talk about why they like it, just so you know, like, what's the deal with this, this country tune? I don't get it. Like, I'm not a Tom Waits fan. I respect what he does, and I respect why people like him. So I can take that but I don't have to like listening to him. I think that's the struggle. I mean, I come from like an acting acting background, and so I think it's it's a similar thing in that you're kind of encouraged to like, okay, watch the horror movies, watch the action movies, and stuff like that. And even if they're not like the the satisfying things to watch, right. like there's, um, I guess you, you're supposed to appreciate the technique behind them, and they're good. It's a good version of that thing. Yeah. So do you feel like that's that's kind of what you try to go for? Is like, okay, well that's all right, that's the best version of that kind of music, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just it's just getting to know that, like, what is your intention, what's your values, and also something that was really interesting uh, a few years ago. There was the rock, like the rock lottery thing happens every year. I don't know if you've seen that, but um, Psycho Steve does this thing where he brings in twenty five indie musicians and randomly assigns them together, and then they have to write three songs in a day and perform them that night. And I got put with a guy from Playboy Man Baby and. Um, uh, I can't remember the name. The the guy the the Ned Flanders metal band. There's one of the guys oh, from that. Yeah. And Josh okay. Hill and uh, this other drummer guy. And so it really was, established musicians in their own yes, right. Yes, yeah. right. But what was beautiful about that that I didn't realize so viscerally until that day is that 
these musicians have very specific relationships with their music and things that they want to bring out of music. Like one guy's like, I just want like a good time at a party. And one guy's like, I just really want these things flowy or like, I really want this emotional. And then you're, you're having a meeting with different people and their styles and relationships and finding a way to like have a compromise like together. But um, at the end of the day, like people, like there are so many relationships with music and um, I think it's worth having an understanding how many ways that you can interact with music. So after going through an experience like that where you kind of have to self-reflect and say like, well, okay, what, a, what are they bringing to the table? What am I bringing to yeah. the table? I mean, what do you feel like the, the essential element of, of what you, you provide for music is? Um, my, my, one of my main values with music is, is connection emotionally. Um, and, and while like I have this like amazing love for, for different chord progressions and, and I'm very intrigued by polyrhythms, different rhythmic approaches, um, I care most about whatever this emotional feeling I'm having and making sure that it interacts with the music in a thoughtful way, that the music is there to, to assist the expression and um, to make sure that whatever I'm expressing is really thoughtfully researched and dissected because I, I want to be able to bring an emotion to the table of a song and then walk away feeling like I've had some sort of resolve in whatever discomfort I'm going through. Um, so basically, like, emotional integrity is what I care most about in performance. So that's that's interesting, and uh, correct me if I'm interpreting it the wrong way, but let's talk about the process then. So it sounds like you kind of decide on the emotion you want to portray first and then figure out the the kind technique of, of which to do that. So kind that of. <laughs> it's, you, you know, it's, it's kind of... Um, I think of it like three different files. One is just the band and I frequently improvise. Sure. And we just make up shit and we record it. Yeah. Um, another file is just a bunch of journals that I've written about catalogs of emotions and feelings. And then another file is just random things in my life that are interesting or like research I'm doing on something. And they all kind of just float around. And <laughs> I'm taking off. Okay, you're awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. Files, they kind of float separately and then one day something will latch. For instance, um, trying to, like a couple of things. Just warning, this is not my car. Yeah, no, it's okay. not mine either. Okay. This person <laughs> will forgive me. It's gonna be okay. But like, I'm so sorry, it's so relaxing. Um, like we have a song called Scuba, and it took two years to write. Because we had a sound idea, we had an improvised melody idea, I was researching for two years, and I was researching Joan of Arc and Mark Twain and feminism. I had to like read an entire book about radical feminism. Mm -hmm. And then I had to understand my own personal feelings about that, which the biggest challenge was I didn't have a full understanding of my own emotional feelings. So in that situation, that song was extracting my emotions. And sometimes my emotions are extracting the music. So it just depends on, on which, which pillar um, is, is most prominent, and then they extract what's missing. So it, um, I never actually thought of it literally that way till just now, but that's sort of the process is, is there's three pillars and they're they're pulling something out. Gotcha. So just depending on kind of, I guess, where you're at in yes. your life, right, at any given moment, yeah. you're either thinking more along the lines of just like te technical playing or the emotions or whatever it might right. be, and then you, you figure out how to make that happen yes. in real life. Okay. So like the day-to-day the -day of that is just investing time in like cataloging your feelings and thoughts, spending time learning about random things because it inspires you and, that and it fosters curiosity for creativity, and then spending a lot of time just making up stuff so that you run into something like, wow, for some reason that part at like at three minutes and 14 seconds of that jam, I felt something really powerful and something worked right there and I need to figure out what emotion really works with that feeling and then it just kind of breathes. 
So are you uh, consistently kind of like going back through your own improv, yes. improvised jams and listening to them? Is that ever tedious for you? Is that ever difficult? It, it can be. We have like yeah. thousands of recordings <laughs> to go back to. And um, I mean, we have, I'd say we probably have like 20 just jams that we've decided we'd like enough that we eventually want to develop. But they're still like their own pillars that need to be, that need to extract emotions for. So like, I mean, one that I just wrote last weekend was a jam for four years. And then out of nowhere, I woke up one day like, oh, that song needs to be about this. And then I just wrote the song that day. Wow. So I was just like, thank God I had like a thing that needed to extract that emotion. So it's just, they, it's a waiting game, I guess, for me. What I'm really impressed about that is this idea that, I mean, like you said, it's like, okay, minute 319 out of that that yeah. jam is is really something special we should hold on to that but in order to get there it means you have to get through three minutes and 18 seconds of Whatever. pretty good yeah, yeah okay fine and i i guess i mean is it is it ever kind of something that weighs on you of like that one second piece was all i got from this jam or anything yeah. like that it, it's yeah. what i've what i've noticed is that um if i if i had that invested care about sort of feeling like 318 was failure and then like just that one second um it that sort of enables like a perfectionistic mindset hmm. and the more perfectionistic that you are about the process the more stifled you are creatively so you have to be willing to mess up and just make things for the sake of making things and not worry about is this going to be worth my time am i wasting my time because you kind of have to waste some time to stumble upon things to get out of your own way so, I mean, there are so many recordings I'll never use, but every once in a while when com something comes up, you're like, it's just, it makes it all worth it. Like, that's just the part of the work is, is, oh, like, I've done so much research where I never use the research. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe I spent that much time learning about this, and it's just, it's for no reason. Like, it actually doesn't resonate at all. But it might have, but I wouldn't have known if I didn't research it. You just spend a lot of conversations hoping somebody brings up, like, radical feminism, and you're like, actually, actually I know something I got about that. this. But yeah, I, I had an instinct that the Joan of Arc thing would line up, and I just didn't know how it lined up, but I, I read a lot about her, and I was like, for God's sake, please let this make sense somewhere emotionally. And then, it, and it did, which is just like, you know, so those things happen. So let's talk about that, that actual part of the process after the payoff. So yeah. once you've, you've been struck by some kind of inspiration, um, how do you uh, broach like bringing it to the other musicians? Um, it doesn't take much. And all of us kind of have our own independent way of bringing something to the band. Like Garrison and I just received an email from our drummer of this thing he made on Logic. And Garrison and I are obsessed with it. And when, like, I've listened to it like 60 times. I'm like, I love this song. And I'm just like, please, whatever emotions need to come out, come out like today so I can write this now because it's so cool. Um, so if I do it by myself, I'll start at home. And um, either we'll start with a melody or I'll have my loop station and I'll just sort of create a chord progression with my voice and record it and then bring it to the band and say, hey, I like these changes that I made whatever we do with it and then they'll take that and then we'll just sit with it and record for like 25 minutes and they'll just play those changes out and go somewhere and then I'll take that back and be like okay I'm gonna listen to 25 minutes of whatever this is and find the the cool perks to use for arranging so when it comes to the final product is uh, do you always kind of defer to the person who brought the initial um, elements for I think it, that or? person usually gets more credit for it because yeah. like they were the sort of the the instigator um, but it just depends. Some of the songs started from one person, but so much effort was put in through everybody that we we wouldn't. I mean, like Scuba was was Steven's idea initially, but 
Garrison and I put so much effort into that arrangement that we do feel like it's a very equal representation of us as a group. Gotcha. So there's there's no conflict of um, that's not what I meant with this. Like that's no. And if anything, I think that's what I love the most about this yeah. band is that we rarely have conflicts in that way, um, and we have a very safe and open space to discuss. And also, like Garrison had a song where he's like, "Hey, I'm writing this about appreciating my mom," and when I tried to do it for myself. That was not what I came up with. It was it was talking about more of the conflicts that we needed to resolve. And so I had to do that for myself, mm. and Garrison respected my decision on that. And he can still have that a different relationship with that song. Mm. So, it, you know, there's there's a lot of space for that, that compromise, and, and it's healthy. And I just feel very creatively enabled by them. Ironic that the example you used was a song about conflict resolution, talking about that. Yeah. That's good. But, uh, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, one thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier on that I, I'm curious about, and again, I don't want to kind of, like assume anything or like you know, have any negative connotations come over it or anything, but I mean, just like the, the gig that you're playing tonight and everything, you know, at the, uh, at the VIG, um, it seems like a lot of like the jazz music that you tend to play is, is more atmospheric. Yes. Um, and so it's, it's almost, you know, kind of off to the background meant to add to the overall mood of a place. Yeah. Um, is that, again, going back to ego, like is that something that, that you ever feel, feel weird about, just the idea that you're doing this not to bring the attention to you really, but to just um, add something else? Well, the cool, th- here's, that, that's the distinction between the band and the solo thing. Okay. So in this particular context, when you don't have a listening audience, and you kind of have people listening, and you, like sure. there's some friends here and stuff, but you don't have to depend on their approval to enjoy yourself. And that's a skill to cultivate in this business. And we've been a band together for four years, and we've done this particular place. Like, our band started at this place. So this initially was just our excuse to develop material and just build repertoire. Um, But the the fun and the thriving of, of doing these gigs is just being, interacting with each other. And I get to listen to what Garrison plays and what the drummer plays, and, like, um... I get to appreciate what they're doing and they're performing for me. Almost kind of you'd be here anyways even if no one showed yeah, up. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. even matter. So, and, like, and I get people like, I'm so sorry that no one clapped or I'm so sorry that no one showed up and like, I don't care. I'm performing for my band and they appreciate it and like if someone else does, that's great. Um, but yeah, if you care too much about that, you, you come home and you're just like so depressed. So when you're solo by yourself, you have no one to like interact with. You just have to really <laughs> like your arranging process and messing with the machine and then hope anyone else maybe might hear you. But is that? Did you ever find yourself in in an atmosphere that just does not lend itself to what you're doing? But <laughs> that happened last week, actually. Um, I mean, I I don't want to. There's like a Mexican. Joint. No one listens to this. It's cool. Yeah. That, oh sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a Mexican joint down the street yeah. that was like, hey, uh, we want to have your band. I was like, cool. You should really have the trio. It's a lot more energy. I just get the vibe. If you're doing tequila stuff, you should really have a high vibe. Like, well, we have the budget for a duo, and I was like, well, the duo is looping with a drummer. Are you sure? He's like, yeah, that would be great. I'm like, okay. And I show up, and you know, everyone's in their tequila life, and I'm just going like, do 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 and like, you know, the drummer's doing this thing, and it, yeah. it's just, it's way more of a coffee vibe than it is like a tequila vibe. And I yeah. don't take that personally, but yeah. it makes it really weird in that setting. Like, I don't feel like I fit in here, and I feel very distracted by how awkward this feels. Do you find obligated to kind of change what you're doing in order to fit that, or do yes. you power through? Yeah. I the obligation's there, and yeah. I don't like that obligation okay. because I love I love atmospheric kind of slowy things uh-huh. at my own volition. I'd like to be able sure. to have that autonomy to decide that sort of contrast of sometimes upbeat, sometimes not. But in that space, you got to do everything four on the floor, and you got to like have that like funk feel all the time, and like everything's got to push and feel techno-ish, and like it's just not my jam. 
you know. So, yeah, I, there are some places where it's fine if it's a band. Cool, like the band can push and then I'll just hang. But, yeah, by myself, I'm not really, I don't like beatboxing upbeat stuff very often. So. Right, let's talk about solidifying your, your jam a little bit more because you just recently released your album, your self-titled yeah. album. Very exciting. Let's talk about that process a little bit. We started that a year and a half ago. Um, so we had an EP release show three years ago. The engineer for that show, we thought he was cool and we liked his work. And we tested him on like a video shoot and the way he mixed was great. So we're like, hey, we're going to have you do our album. And he had never really done the full throttle of the album before. So he's just like, hey... I've got a shed, we can record there, but I'm also really busy. And he works with the Van Buren, so we just had to find any crevice of time that he had to record us, and that took about a year. And then once that was done, um, we did a lot of mixing, and that took uh, three months, maybe, something. And then we had the mastering, it took a couple months. Um, but we already had been performing these songs for a long time. Um, it was just a matter of recording them. So you had the album written for quite yeah. some time? And except for, except for two songs, I hadn't written the lyrics yet. Okay. And so, if anything, the, the delay in the uh, recording process was helpful for me. It's like, I don't know how to get these lyrics done. They're not happening. I can't force it. And then one day they just show up. And you're like, I just have to wait for that day that it shows up. So as like a, a I guess maybe not mainly, but a consistently like improvisational musician, yeah. how do you make those, those solid decisions of like, these are the however many songs that are going to represent me? Um, or like for the album? Yeah. Kind of thing? Yeah. Well... Um, it depends. With this one, I think particularly we were getting a sense about like an era of connection. And so I didn't want to do any songs that were overtly romantic or love story involved because a lot of them have different relationships with, um, with psych disorders and, and psych health. Um, so each of those songs start from somewhere disconnected and become connected. And we have some interludes that kind of bridge together, but the overall theme of that is just starting from more of like a surface space, going down in depth, and coming to some sort of empowerment by the end. So did you kind of, just as a group, decide that theme and then find what you already had that fit that? Yeah, I guess it's more of just like looking at the list that we had yeah. and finding the, the thread of what we had, and then just making sure to honor that thread and just eliminate anything that wasn't really vibing with that. Was it hard to know that you, like, once it's recorded, it's it's set and you couldn't yeah. tweak it? Yeah, because we still have changed our arrangements quite a bit from recording, yeah. and then we're just, like, we can't, it's too late to re-record it, so <laughs> then we can't do it. So um, it gives an option to, like, do a remix later or do, like, a re-recording. Um, but, yeah, I, it, I have that craving when I hear some songs, like, I have, there's some new changes on that that are so cool, and no one knows about them, so it's just for us. But so are, are you immediately, now that that's been launched, like thinking of the next album, or are you taking a break from that? No, I mean, we're, we're always wanting to write, and we already have like five songs ready to go, and we just got to keep writing, get like maybe another, and we're still debating whether we want to have like a series of EPs just to get some small releases out, or if we want to do another fully involved album. It's more profitable to do a full album, because then you could charge more, and you know, um, the, the cost, of, the ratio is good that yeah. way. Um, but no, I mean, we're, the more we're doing this as a band, the more we're prioritizing writing music over getting more repertoire of covers for these restaurant gigs that we get paid for. So um, yeah, I think the band has like a fire to want to write more and we're all kind of excited and prepared to get into it.
I like that. I think that's probably a good time to start wrapping up and ask the last couple questions I'd like to ask. Um, first and foremost, is anybody in town that you want to give some recognition to? Any artist, any discipline that you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, uh, underground band that I love, Palo Brea. They're a new group. Um, the singer, I often hire to sub for me on gigs, and I just, I love what they're doing. I, I think that they have a lot of integrity in their approach, and I just, I'm excited to see how they keep blooming. Uh, Hyperbella is like some fellow, like, siblings of ours that we love. Alison is just jaw and jaw dropping incredible. Um, Maya Spectra um, is up and coming and they're going to be making some waves. I'm sure of it. Um, those are the four that come up in my, um, oh, Astrid Aurelia as well. And he's like sings and plays bass and he also drums in a different band. Like he's very talented. She's very talented. Um, so, it, yeah, there's a lot of amazing sort of alt-soul, jazz-ish kind of groups going on in Phoenix, and they're really good. Yeah, and I, I thought I was done with questions, but I'm curious about, just yeah. about that. Just, I mean, the idea that that is kind of a, a niche market within the overall kind of music market, like within this yeah. town, like, do you find yourselves kind of consistently doing the same kind of gigs, the same kind of people around? Like, is it, do you feel like yourself getting into a rhythm with the same kind of people, or...? Um, I, th I, I definitely see familiar faces as far as that goes like there or like if I go to another one of their shows I do see a lot of people or like there was a knee body show and they're from New York uh -huh. and I I knew everybody there I was like oh my god this is like a high school reunion in Phoenix because everyone wants to see this band and they're like an experimental jazz group and they have this revolutionary approach to improvisation um, so it, it's just refreshing that there is a vital progressive jazz community here and how do you expand then? Like, how do you go outside of the, the kind of normal routes? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm, I've basically just been reaching out to other larger neo-soul groups to ask questions about their business approach. So it seems like it's a very welcoming community overall. Oh, yeah. I love this community. It's great. And, and I like that people that come to see our shows are people that I like. Like that, that I feel like I'm doing my job right if the people that are attracted to it are, like, cool people. Like, so... Um, that it just makes me really grateful that 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 our music can create some sort of community. So that's really cool. This is probably going to go in the next couple of days. So I mean, what kind of plugs do you have coming up? Um, we do Lost Leaf once a month. The next one is October 23rd. Um, we're doing Apache Lake, and we're doing Wayne Fest right after that. And then we're at Last Exit Live November 1st. So those are like more venue-y. Yeah. And we're doing a South Mountain Community College show on the 26th as well at night, which is free. Um, yeah, so 23 Lost Leaf, 26 Apache, 26 South Mountain, 27 Waynefest, and November 1st is Last Exit. And then all of these on House of Stairs Music? Yeah, houseofstairsmusic.com is the website with the calendar and the deets. Excellent, so, cool. Yeah. And then personal website too, just hollypile? hollypile.com, yeah. Fantastic, cool. Uh, last thing I'd like to ask, um, just if you had one piece of advice you want to give somebody trying to follow the same path that you did, what would you want to tell them? Um, meet a lot of people and just get yourself out there a lot because the, the networking part is is not to be minimized. Um, but the other thing is, is I just really encourage people to find some sort of mentor in their instrument as well just to invest learning because you don't know what you don't know. And I still get coaching to this day even though I teach, but I would never want to sacrifice my learning just because I think I've gotten to a point. And so I just, I like having that sort of blind spot detector outside of me. Okay. So I would encourage that. You can never stop learning. Ever. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be a shame know. if you did. So. <laughs> it would be a shame if you did. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right, Holly, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Cool.
Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistsphx at gmail.com.